This is the Books Podcast, presented by Tim Haig. I think it's incredible that the Beatles are still with us, but you know, the great thing was that they broke up. And I'm really proud of Sorry Boys, You Failed Your Audition, and I just am. Last time we spoke to Ray Connolly uh, was last year on the occasion of uh, his extremely fine biography of John Lennon, and uh, we found an excuse to come and talk to him again. Hello, Ray. How lovely to see you. Great to see you, too. Uh, Our excuse for uh, talking to you this time is uh, the publication of a novella. Uh, Sorry, boys, you failed the audition. What's the premise of the book, Ray? The idea is that what would have happened if in 1962... The Beatles had failed their audition with George Martin at Parlophone Records. And, but it's seen from the point of view of that young 17-year-old fan club secretary. And I thought, well, it, and it began life, actually. It began life as a, an article, I think, for the Daily Mail about 11 years ago. And I just thought, you know, what would happen if the Beatles hadn't been the Beatles? If, you know, and um, so... And we take, and so we follow their careers through her eyes for the next seven years. So it's it's uh, it's kind of alternative history, alternative Beatle history, which weirdly is is in the air, isn't it? There's been this film recently on a very different subject, but with with the same kind of spirit. But you had the idea first. I mean, not only was it a an article, it was a radio play. An article first, and then I thought this is a a good radio play for BBC, so I did that. And it went down very well. We were very lucky. We got a fantastic girl playing Frida. Frida is the is the fan club secretary, and Frida just can't give up on them. So we had this wonderful girl who was uh, she wasn't from Liverpool actually, but she had a great accent. She told me her parents were Iranian and Scottish, and she came from Wolverhampton, I think, but had a great Liverpool accent. Well, Liverpool's a great melting pot. Isn't having it? heard it, having having learned her accent, listening to Brookside. Or listening, watching when she got home from school as a little girl or young girl, and now she's so she's this great girl, and it was, I enjoyed it so much, and as did a lot of listeners. So I thought, well, this should be a novella, actually. Well, the other thought was maybe it should be a stage play, which the actors at the time said to me this should be on the stage, and I thought it might be for a bit, but I think that getting the musical rights to even three or four songs is very very difficult. So in the end, yeah, it was like that, that film yesterday. I think they paid ten million for the yeah. music rights, so that would have been probably a bit out of out, out of, of my, <laughs> out of my scale, out of yeah. our league there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I thought, well, you know, when you write a radio play, if you don't, it, if you don't hear it, it disappears, and no one ever knows. And it's on at four o'clock on a, or two o'clock, whatever it is, on BBC, and on two or three times, maybe three or four, but then it's gone. And I thought, well, if it's a novel, just a little novel, and this is a, quite a short novel, then it's a brown forever. And you can, people can say, oh, that's a good idea, you know. And maybe one day it will be a stage play, or maybe one day it'll be a film like yesterday. Or yeah. even better. Well, hopefully, yeah. So this Frida, Frida Kelly, she actually was a real person. Frida Kelly was and still is a real person. And she let me rewrite her, her life for her. She didn't mind at all. She said, oh, yeah. Do what you want, Ray. I don't mind. What's she like? Because she's lovely. She, she she's Great. actually it's a brilliant idea, Ray. I mean, once you've done it, it's obvious. And and I go, oh yes, of course. But until you know, you have the idea of these 
things are never yeah. obvious. And and taking Frida Kelly, who is a, a, a one of these peripheral characters in the Beatles story that I, I've known of mm. for forty years, but it's never occurred to me to wonder what she was like. Well, she's a real Liverpool girl, and she's just lovely and nice and friendly, very very friendly and helpful. And when I said I wanted to do this, she said, "Oh, that's fine. I don't mind. You can." I said, "Well, it'll mean I'll change your life a bit. I'll, I'll change your story." She said, oh, I, don't, "I don't mind, because I, she uses her married name now, although she's no longer married. She uses, and so it's not Frida Kelly. Frida Kelly was her maiden name, and Frida was spelt wrongly too, because her name is spelt slightly differently. But anyway, she didn't mind, and so it's just great because um, she's great to talk about those." Early days, because I mean, because she knew the Beatles intimately. Well, she, she knew them before they were famous. Before they were famous, yeah, which is the real them. trick of it, isn't it? Norris Green in a in a in a sort of scouts hut or something in Norris Green or some some gig in Nor in Liverpool, little and she and she got a job helping helping I think somebody else in Epstein's office, and then the other person disappeared, and, and she became the fan club secretary, which she thought was the best job in the world. Which, if you're 17 and, and in Liverpool, it must have been great, a great job to have, yeah? Um, it must indeed. I'm, I, I must say, I thought the dialogue is superb. And, I, 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 you know, perhaps the, having come from the, uh, the radio play, you, you, you had the dialogue all worked out. I, I thought the Beatle banter was brilliant. It, it, sometimes when you come across people trying to do Beatles banter, it, it can be a bit embarrassing yeah, yeah. because it's all a bit forced. You just, you just have an ear for it. Well, I'm, you know, I'm from that part of the world and I knew them very well. And, you know, I could hear it when I was, when I was doing it. Um, yeah, I, I could. I mean, I love hearing you say that. But I, actually, I think it's good too, to be honest. There's <laughs> one way well, you, you, you've got you've got John saying, "I'm not going to waste my life trying to be heard," and George saying, "How are you going to waste your life yeah. then, John?" Yeah. Which, it, it just sounds it just sounds like them. that's George all over, isn't it? You can just hear him saying, "Well, it, you know, yeah." Well, that's it. Lugubrious. You, you've a bit. got which one is which. You've got them uh, mm. knowing which one would be likely to pitch in at that point. Yeah. Did, did you have to sweat blood about it, or is it just all in your past? It, is it, all? it kind of came, their dialogue kind of came without much effort. Um, you know, there's a bit when, later on when Paul says, I would never, never ask John Lennon to write to help me with the song, you know. And I thought, I can hear Paul saying this, because, I mean, he said things like, I would never, never have a, a woman's choir on the long and winding road when you got... He did say that, and he got very cross about it. He was uh, right, too. Absolutely right, yeah. But uh, so, you know, they'd said similar things, or I'd heard that tone. And I did hear an awful lot of John anyway, for sure, an awful lot, you know. And he did have his, his And he did talk all the time. Uh, the cadences. The, yeah. The, the, the sense of place and time... Hmm. Uh, again, is is amazingly vivid. Uh, you've got Frida, uh, you know, going to see Carry On Cruising at the pictures, and <laughs> I look like that. Honey magazine and things. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask about yeah. that because, of course, yes, you said you're from that part of the world. Yeah. And you're more or less exactly contemporary with the Beatles. You're yeah. uh, coeval. Yeah, um, with John. With John, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. Um, He's slightly older. Okay. Well, it's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he boasted about that. Yeah, probably. Um, but you, I, I, you you were working for the uh, Liverpool Daily Post or yeah, something? Yeah, Liverpool Daily Post and Echo, the two newspapers in those days. The Echo was the evening paper, which sold the most. And the morning paper, Daily Post, sold more actually in North Wales 
but it actually it was for the sort of posher people the daily post was and i was on the daily post but we'd also do things for the echo as well because it's the same office and they and the prints would ring all, all day and all night you know it was one of those things I know from the last time we spoke that yeah, you first met the Beatles in 67 when they were making Magical Mystery yeah. Tour. Um, but you must have been in Liverpool then at the time that they were playing in the cavern. Do you kick yourself? No, I wasn't there. At the time they were in the cavern, my wife Plum, um, she, went, she went to the cavern she, and she saw them also in Southport. Very exciting. And they sang Love Me Do. And that was even on before they were famous. And that was really exciting. And she wrote to me and told me this. I was in London University. And I thought... Get away. Liverpool. Nothing good comes from Liverpool. It, for me, it was such a snob, a real musical snob. It had to be New Orleans or, or Memphis or Chicago or, you know, Detroit or something. New York, maybe. But Liverpool, And you've no. got a, 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 that chippy sense of resentment in, in the Beatles in Liverpool in this book. Yeah. Saying, you know, yeah. oh, well, they're down in London. They don't yeah. rate us. They, they think we're Timbuktu or... <laughs> yeah, but I was from near Liverpool, a place called Ormskirk, but... 15 miles away and we'd go to Liverpool to get to London for me that's you know that's all I knew about Liverpool to be honest so I didn't get to work there until 1964 um, when the Beatles had gone they'd all long gone, gone yes Beatlemania was at its height yeah. by then so I was left behind I was betwixt and between a bit another another detail which is so right for the period is when when Frieda's job as the uh, fan club secretary disappears yeah. yeah she walks into another job literally in one day yeah people don't remember now yeah. how what it was like in the 60s it, it gave youth an enormous sense of freedom didn't it that you yeah. could walk and have a job and yeah. get another one tomorrow yeah. yeah 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 it was that fantastic thing about uh, and the whole period of the 60s that people don't actually understand it wasn't just the beatles it was everything was going with it you know the full employment thing and there were jobs and, and so you lose one job you get another one you know, it's not the end of the world. And her dad thinks, you know, you know, she's a, a she's a secretary, shorthand type. Why is she with this 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 gang of ruffians? Well, when, you would when you know if if, if your dad, you would think that, wouldn't you? If you I, couldn't, I think if you didn't today. have Frida's vision that the Beatles yeah. should be the greatest show on earth, then yeah, you would think it's, a, yeah. it's just a pop boat group. It's just a pop band. Yeah. yeah. Why, why would you waste your time on? Yeah, them? and of course, he's a father and. Uh, She's no mother. Mother's died. Um, actually, in real life, she had a stepmother, but this isn't real life. The story is actually slightly, slightly different. It's, it's a lovely, it's a very sweet book in that way. Her relationship with her dad is, is really nice. Made me cry a bit. Yeah. It, well, I, I can very easily get involved. And I was the dad sometimes, because mm -hmm. you, know, you, you do. That's what happens when, you, when you're writing something. Um, and uh, I was, you know... There's a bit where he goes to watch the football and things and that sort of thing. Yeah, I can. I imagined it completely. I, I was. It's very and vivid, that, and that's why I've done it because, because you know, you write things. I've, I've written millions of things and so much stuff, and lots hasn't been made or some, some has been made and it's been all right. Quite a lot have. I mean, you've published a yeah, lot of yeah. novels and you've done a yeah. whole bunch of screenplay. We'll yeah, come but, back to the screenplay. But an awful lot of, of. I mean, before you came today, I've been sorting out my study upstairs, and finding stuff I'd forgotten I'd even written. And so the stuff, you know, and now and again, there's something that you really like. And I'm really proud of, sorry, boys, I feel you fail your audition. And I just am. And, it, you know, it, it began eight years ago. And I'm still thinking about it and still want to see it on the stage. I want to see it on film. I want to see it 
I want to see it in books, you know, so I've done it. That title, Sorry Boys You Failed the Audition, has an enormous resonance because one of the things you do is you bring in things that uh, Beatles fans will, will go, aha, yes, yeah. so that, because that, that's a reference precisely to... Well, it's a reference to um, the very last concert they did on the roof of Apple, and at the end of it, John leans forward and says, we, I hope we pass the audition, you know, whatever. And then, and yeah, Maureen Stark is applauding oh, uh, there. It's just oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. a couple yeah. of people giggle. And yeah, yeah. It was, uh, so I thought, yeah, so that, that's where that came from. I'd forgotten, actually, I'd forgotten where I got it from. That's where I got it from, obviously, you know. Okay, so we've got four Beatles not becoming the greatest show on earth. Um, what do they do after the dream has died? Well, what I thought would happen was I tried to work out what would happen, actually, basically. And I thought, well, um, John, his girlfriend is pregnant. Which um, was true. Yeah, which is true. And is, they're not going to be stars. They've been trying in, in Germany, and it's not working out. And I thought, he'd probably give in eventually and say, I'm fed up with this. I'm just bored with it. So he drops out. And then they, the, the other three carry on for a bit. Um, because, you know, they, and then Paul's father, who was very keen for Paul to go to university, he leans on Paul, and Paul goes back to school and does his A-levels again. And which he well, would have done. Which he would, because he's very, and he's clever. Mm. So he would have and, gone, and studious. Oh, yeah. And very hardworking. Mm. Very hardworking, Paul. And goes off to university. So, so this, is, this is happening. George... George just wants to play the guitar. He doesn't care who. Yeah, you've got him as a jobbing guitarist. Yeah, but he would. Uh, uh, he joins oh the Pete Best band yeah. at one point. That yeah. that gave yeah. me a giggle because yeah. yeah. if if anybody if there's anybody who doesn't know Pete Best was Pete Best was the person that was the drummer who was replaced by Ringo Starr on the brink of Beatles stardom. So George winds up playing in the Pete Best band. That's a that's a, a, a lovely little wrinkle, a little, little I irony. Hope Pete, I hope Pete likes that. Because <laughs> yeah. Pete uh, Best is still alive, of course. Oh, yeah. yeah, he's, And he's still playing. Or, or he's playing again. He didn't play for a long time. He's now playing again. In the yeah. 60s, somebody made an album of him uh, playing called Best of the Beatles, yeah. which was cheeky. Well, he does that now. I think he actually, he, in his set, he now plays lots of Beatles songs. Because, you know, he says, and I said, why? He said, well, they're such bloody good songs. <laughs> Well, you know, why wouldn't you? You why indeed? They're the best songs. Ringo's a a, a businessman, and uh, yeah. and you have him buying the cavern. Well, what I do originally—that was so good natured. Originally, I have I have Ringo going back to join Rory Storm, playing in Butlins, which is where he was until the Beatles grabbed him away and sacked Pete Best. So he goes back to Rory Storm and plays in U.S. Air Force bases in in Germany, and then he plays at Butlins, where Frida goes to see him. And then eventually he disappears and he's wondering, why is it, where has he gone? Where has he gone? And um, eventually uh, Cynthia, who's married to John, finds him uh, or says where he is and she goes to see him. And he, he's actually, uh, he's, he's won the pools, basically. Like, it's like winning the lottery today. In those days, you won seventy-five thousand pounds. Again, on which, the grounds that Ringo is lucky. It's, it's, lucky. it's that characterization. Ringo was always lucky. And she says, you're very lucky, Ringo. I said, well, yeah, I know I always am. But then his big worry is, what am I going to spend my money on? And uh, towards the end of, of the story, you discover he's bought the cavern. Because, of course, the council were going to knock it down. Which they did anyway. Put a in, in, 73, in 1973. Yeah, I always think that Liverpool should have known by 1973 oh, that the God. Beatles were iconic. 
And to knock down the cabin was monstrous. Well, it's stupid, wasn't it? Utterly stupid. But they knocked down all those, a lot of those beautiful Georgian houses and put it, you know, you thought, well, surely it'd be better to have actually done them up and made them really nice people, people to go and live in, not knock them down. Because you can't, you can't bring back Georgian times, but they did. I mean, so, you know, they're very, very stupid people around, you know. <laughs> I've noticed that, yeah. And a lot of them are in authority. Well, they're the sort of people that want to be an authority. Yeah, they shouldn't be allowed. Well, there you are. So the rest of the book, then, the, is dictator here. Frida just not accepting. Frida can't accept any of this, and she keeps on and on and on. And in the end, she uh, she's giving up. She has What, what she does is she has um, the ex-Beatles fan club. She's, instead of being the Beatles, the Beatles fan club secretary, she's the ex-Beatles fan club secretary. And she continues sending them out sending all the fans, uh, which were getting fewer and fewer and fewer, details of what they're up to about. And they, they, don't, they don't care. They're not interested. They've moved on. Paul's at university is going on holiday to the south of France, picking grapes and things. And, and she's sort of still stuck in Liverpool, not giving in. And so eventually she, um, she by one way or another... Yeah, we won't, and if I we tell won't you give away story, the ending. No, we're not going to give away the Tell you the whole story. Yet. You don't need to buy it, need you? Yeah, exactly. But it, it. She, she, she's desperate to she's bring desperate, them together. And she again. doesn't give in. And she, yeah. Um, There's a lovely elegiac and she's, feel to it. Uh, that yeah. Somehow, the, because what the book is saying is the Beatles were inevitable. <laughs> you know, you have to yeah, have Beatles. Yeah, the world yeah. without the Beatles just won't do. So did you not believe the film yesterday? Um, well, I didn't believe it because it, it had some... Whole, I mean, it was nice enough and the music was good. I thought the the great, songs were great, and that yeah. was a, enough excuse for me. Yeah. So I, I like that. Now, last time we spoke, and naturally we spoke mostly about John Lennon because that's what the book was about. I just want a little bit for a couple of minutes to talk about uh, Ray Connolly because mm. um, you you have some other claims to fame as well. I mean, you've been a journalist, of course. Um, you've written oh, the novels and, and biographies and things. Probably what people will be most impressed with is you you wrote some screenplays. You wrote a couple of movies that I think everybody's seen. You wrote uh, That'll Be the Day and Stardust um, in the in the 70s. Uh, so did, now, I want to ask you a really cheeky question. Did they make you any money? Oh, yeah, I'll tell you. Um, we all got paid the same. Um, Ringo Starr, David Essex, me... Um, David the, Putnam produced, didn't he? Well, yeah, he got. He, he was he was working for a company though. So, but I mean, oh. and Ringo Starr and um, the director, we all got five thousand pounds each to do it. Yeah, and I've had royalties ever since, and I think in total, I've probably made out of that about twenty five thousand pounds. Oh, okay, over, so some money, but over not, thirty years, not not life changing <laughs> money. And I think on Stardust, which we did afterwards, I'll tell you, I don't mind people knowing. I mean. Uh, I think I maybe had about thirty thousand pounds in total. Maybe Stardust won a BAFTA, didn't it, for best yeah. screenplay? No, I got the Writers Guild. Writers Guild. I beg your pardon for that. Yeah, but a best screenplay award. Yeah, yeah. Um, it must have been a very thin a best British screenplay. And in those days, there weren't many films being made. <laughs> many British films being made. So, yeah. Anyway, I was very pleased to get that. It's nice. What was it like working with uh, Ringo Starr as a movie actor and Keith Moon and? Uh, and David Essex and all of that crowd. Well, David Essex wasn't really a star. I mean, the, the real star, the whole thing, was David Putnam. It was his idea. I went to borrow a book, a book on Elvis, because I knew he had it, he bought it in New York. 
and we do each other not very well. And we got talking, and he said, well, what are you doing? Do you want to write a film for me? Which I didn't even know what a film looked like. A film God, those are different times. Oh, People would murder their imagine. grandmother to write a film these I, days. I had no idea. And I said, well, how do you write one? He said, well, imagine the scene. It's you and me sitting in here. So you int for interior, and then you describe room. <laughs> room means in-house, you know, day. And then you set the scene, and then you what we're talking about. And then you go to the next scene. So, so I thought, sounds pretty easy, this does. <laughs> well, actually, it's a bit harder than that. But, you know, but basically, we, we, we sat together and we plotted that'll be the day, that day, very roughly. It was based on a song by Harry Nielsen. The idea was based on Oh, that. 1941. 1941, A yes. Happy Father Had a Son. And in the song, the boy leads to join the circus. And David said, you know, maybe you should go to a fair. A fun and, fair, that's right. That's what we had. And then we thought, well... It should be about our growing up period, what we were doing. And David uh, left school at 15, 16, went to work, and I went to university. So I was the really dozy one in the two. In the film, we've got um, David Essex drops out and his friend goes to university. Well, I was like the friend who did the really straight things. And um, so and we did it. And I would write it every day when I got home from from. At the time, I was on the Evening Standard, interviewing a lot of very famous people. But when I had the time, I'd write this film. David Putnam would come around for his breakfast every like two or three mornings a week, see what I'd written. And I'd show him, and we'd laugh and make jokes and go away. And then, eventually, I just assumed it would be made anyway. I mean, it never occurred to me that you write a film, it wouldn't be made. And David, I think David was a bit, a bit wiser than me. He said, well, you know, we'll see. Anyway, it was made, but he forced it through. But then... We couldn't he couldn't find all the money and we had to raise some more money and he got a deal with Ronco Records, a Canadian company, that if we could put 40 tracks in the film of rock and roll songs, because we were going to have about two or three or four, maybe four at maximum, but we had to get 40 in. So we thought, well, if he's on the fair, we can have him going from the dodgems where we get like... 10 seconds of the Everly Brothers to the, to the Big Wheel, where you get 10 seconds of Little Richard. To, and we have to go one to the other of these things to, just to get snatches of these songs. As yeah, went I thought that was reckless of you when I saw it. I thought this must have cost a fortune to get the rights to all these songs. It but worked, it was a deal. It worked the other way. Actually, they then put money in. You know, I mean, it did, cost, it did cost whoever a lot of money, but not like a million, not like 10 million, not like the films these days. It, it cost probably, I don't know, no, it couldn't have cost that. The entire film only cost £210,000. Yeah, but it made half a million. Yeah. It made half a million profit. I looked it, it up. Made a load of money. Yeah. yeah. But, but not for Both us. of them. <laughs> Both of them made not, um, not for good us. money. I think EMI did very well out of them. And um, Ronco did very well. Because they then, they then sold them through the TV companies. And so they'd have these commercials for our film using these songs. And go and see this great film with David Essex and these records. And so it was fluke so it was a, a huge success um and, and a success in a way i was surprised at how well it was received but in a way i thought it would get made because david was going to get it made and he made his mind up and he, and he was a great producer but then yeah, he's done quite well since <laughs> oh yeah but when they when we'd done that on the way to one of the screenings we're going along hyde park park lane and he said we've got to do the sequel I said, what? He said, no, we're, going to, we're going to do a sequel next, Raymond. That's what we're going to do. And I said, well, are you sure? He said, well, either that or we do it on the, on the stage. What do you think? And I said, well, don't know anything about the stage either of us. He said, no, no, well, let's do, on, let's do a film then. 
So then I, was, then I went on holiday with him and his family down to Italy and we planned Stardust, same way. And then we couldn't get Ringo Starr. In the first one, we got Ringo Starr in that of the day um, because we, we hadn't been, neither David or me had been actually to Butlins. And we, we knew Ringo had worked. Ringo there. was the only person you knew who'd yeah. been to Butlins. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we went, we got, we got Ringo in and we went in. I just rang up Apple and said, uh, can we, Derek Taylor, and said, can we talk to Ringo um, about, and he said, great, all right, we'll go in. We had lunch with him. And Neil Aspinall, who was then the managing director of Apple, he'd been there roadie once, but he'd been to Butlins too. So we all sat and laughed and had a few laughs. And I sort of slightly changed the script, not much. But we were going to give Ringo a small part in the film, the part that Billy Fury got finally. And on the way out, he'd, we sort of said, maybe we, should, maybe we should give him the part, a big part, you know, of the other guy in the film. And so that was what happened. And it worked. He was good. He was great. The best thing he ever did in yeah. film. And it was a tragedy, really, because he was so good. He, but he would, then wouldn't do the Stardust. And we have to assume it was too close to home because it was about a rock star. And he didn't want to do it anyway. So we, we got Adam Faith in, who was all right. Um, and that's how that worked. It, it's pure luck, though, you know. It was just pure luck for me to get involved with David Putt when he was a rising young producer. And we just got on. We're still friends. We're still short, you know. Um, in fact, two years ago, years ago, we thought maybe we should have carried the story on to be a, a sort of long-running series. I mean, these days, for television, do that period. As, uh, I think nobody wanted it. So... Uh, We'll go back to the book. Sorry, boys, you'll fail the audition. Just for one more general question. Do you not think it's incredible, after all this time, that there's still so much mileage in the Beatles? I think it's incredible, yeah. The, the Beatles are still with us. But, you know, the great thing was that they broke up um, and that John finished them at, on a peak, if he'd not, and they'd sort of gone on. And... Album by album, they wouldn't have been as good. They would have sort of. You mean if, away. if a Beatles record had included the Frog Chorus, it might not. Yeah, have, yeah, it might yeah, have tarnished yeah. the luster. Would have been, but but you know that thing about about the great thing. You know, Mozart died at thirty three or thirty five or something, and the great thing, the Beatles died in effect when they were thirty. You know, and no matter what they did afterwards, and John had Imagine and Paul had a few great songs too. Not that many, or John didn't either. But the Beatles were frozen in time. And those seven years in the 60s, because they ended in September 69, in effect, um, those seven years were, um, they were just part of the furniture of the time, per part of everyone's lives, in a way that, in a way, only the Queen is that famous. They were so famous. It was, it's hard to understand now and appreciate how important they were. But they were like a, a, a locomotive dragging everything along with them. And whatever happened, the Beatles sort of seemed to be involved in some way, although they weren't, they, they seemed to be, because they, they caught the moment. And we let them catch the moment, and we, and we encouraged them to catch the moment. But they did. Um, and they were just so incredibly good. Ray, thank you for talking to us. And thank you very much for this lovely little book, which is Sorry Boys, You Failed the Audition by Ray Connolly, published by Malignon, at £7.50. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was The Books Podcast with Tim Haig. The Books Podcast is produced by Green Shoot, 
You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com.